with asking your mate down the pub about vaping, here's what they'd probably say. No one agrees if it's safer or not, so you might as well smoke anyway. Now what your mate needs is a Cochrane review, all the facts have been checked at least twice. They'd find there's a lot that the experts agree on and might give you different advice. Hi, I'm Nicola Linson. And I'm Jamie Hartman-Boyce. We're both researchers based at the University of Oxford, where we work with the Cochrane Tobacco Addiction Group. Welcome to this edition of Let's Talk E-Cigarettes. This podcast is a companion to a research project being carried out at the University of Oxford, where every month we search the e-cigarette research literature to find new studies. We then use these studies to update our Cochrane Systematic Review of e-cigarettes for smoking cessation. This is called a Living Systematic Review. In each episode, we start by going through the studies we have found that month and then go into more detail about a particular study or topic related to e-cigarettes. So this month, we ran our searches on the 1st of April and found four new ongoing studies, which we'll tell you a bit more about in this month's In a Nutshell. So the first study I'm going to describe to you is led by Elias Klemperer at the University of Vermont in the USA. It's a pilot randomised controlled trial that recruited people who were dual using combustible cigarettes and e-cigarettes and were not motivated to quit either product. People were assigned to one of three groups, one that were given e-cigarette pods with less nicotine than their usual pods, one that were asked to reduce their e-cigarette use by half and one that were asked to use their e-cigarettes as usual. The investigators planned to look at the effects of this on cigarette smoking independence. The study was due to complete toward the end of 2021, although no results are available yet. Based on only the trial record, it isn't clear who the study is funded by. So the second study is another randomised controlled trial, and this one is led by Michael Stein at Butler Hospital in the US. Again, it's not clear who the funder is. This trial is due to complete in 2024 and is aiming to recruit people who smoke who also have an opioid use disorder and are receiving methadone treatment. Participants will be split into two groups, one that will receive e-cigarettes for six weeks and another that will receive nicotine lozenges for six weeks. Their outcomes of interest will be nicotine exposure, changes in smoking behaviour, as well as various measures of lung function. Great. Thanks, Nicola. And so the final two, one is called an aggressive smoking cessation trial with the acronym ASAP. And that's being led by Mark Eisenberg in Canada, who actually was our first ever guest on this podcast. It looks like the study's sponsored by the hospital at which he's based. I'm not sure if there's other funding as well. I was super excited to see this trial because it is big. So it's a five-year multicenter randomized controlled trial, and it wants to assess the effects of smoking cessation treatment initiated in hospital in people who are admitted for heart attacks. They're aiming to recruit 800 adults who smoke and are motivated to quit smoking, and they're going to randomize them to one of two conditions. One group will receive varenicline, which is a frontline stop smoking medication, as well as counseling for 12 weeks. And the second group will also receive that same varenicline and counseling as well as nicotine e-cigarettes. So it's a really big study testing whether nicotine e-cigarettes added to varenicline are more effective than varenicline alone. 
They're going to follow up participants for a year. It's a really big study. They haven't started recruiting yet. So we have a while to wait, I'm afraid, for the results with an estimated primary completion date of September 2025 for collecting their final outcome data. And then the final new ongoing study looks at e-cigarettes for harm reduction in adults with asthma. Their study acronym is SWAP. And it's led by Alexander Sokolovsky at Brown University. Looks like it's sponsored by Brown as well as the National Institute of General Medical Sciences in the States. There may also be other funders, but that's not totally clear from the trial record. And compared to that aggressive smoking cessation trial, this one's much smaller. Uh, It's a 16-week trial of 30 participants. And what they're setting out to do is investigate the impact of electronic cigarettes on various outcomes in adults with asthma who regularly smoke traditional cigarettes and at the time of recruitment don't also regularly use e-cigarettes. They'll be randomized to either a free e-cigarette or to no intervention, and they'll measure various measures relating to smoking behavior, e-cigarette use, and safety and health impacts. The study is scheduled to finish collecting data in January of next year. So as we mentioned in last month's episode, we're currently undertaking some focused projects supporting by the University of Oxford's Policy Challenge Fund. So last month, we talked about one of those projects uh, with Ailsa, which was around the longer term use of e-cigarettes. In this month's podcast, Deep Dive, we're going to explore flavors in a bit more detail. I had the pleasure of interviewing Associate Professor Alex Lieber from Georgetown University about his work in this area. Um, So Alex, if you could just start off by kind of introducing yourself, telling us a bit about your role and what got you into research in this area. Sure. Uh, My name is Alex Lieber. I'm an assistant professor at Georgetown University's Medical Center in the Lombardi Comprehensive Cancer Center. I have been working in tobacco control research since 2008 when I was an undergraduate at Ohio State University looking for a research project that melded my dual interest in policy and health. And I was very fortunate to stumble upon the open door of Amy Ferkinich, who served as my first mentor and invited me into her work on smoking bans in the Appalachian region of the United States. So that's the mountainous region characterized by coal mining and a lot of poverty stretching from Pennsylvania all the way down to Mississippi. And we learned about the details of smoking bans and how they were passed in different kinds of communities. And that triggered a growing interest in tobacco control that led me on to a master's at Emory University in health services and health policy research. And then importantly, an internship at the American Cancer Society's International Tobacco Control Research Program, where I worked on creating tobacco atlas editions four through six, and I... Sorry, what does that mean? What are toba- What's the Tobacco Atlas and what are editions four through six? Sorry, yeah. So the Tobacco Atlas is one of the leading references in the tobacco control field. So it categorizes all aspects of the tobacco epidemic from who uses tobacco in, in a very global perspective to policy responses to the way the tobacco industry operates over time and over place. And so the Tobacco Atlas is, was published every three years to coincide with the World Conference on Tobacco or Health. And I grew from being an intern whose job it was to assemble all the data behind the chapters in the atlas to a co-author 
uh, by the time I left American Cancer Society. Awesome. And it was my job to work on everything from like smokeless tobacco prevalence up to categorizing the policies with e-cigarettes around the world. Ah. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, it sort of uh, aligns with this. But in at the American Cancer Society, I was uh, given the opportunity to grow into global tobacco control policy research with a real emphasis on tax and price policy. But that mushroomed into an interest in comparative politics and policy that drove my doctorate at University of Michigan forward. So when I got to Michigan, I worked under Holly Jarman, who is, I think, a University of York product. And she helped guide a dissertation that looked at the comparative regulatory politics and policy of e-cigarettes in Australia, New Zealand, and Canada, which is turning into a forthcoming book from University of Toronto Press, Ooh, hopefully fantastic. next year, called Vape-Filled Rooms Tentatively. Uh-huh. Yeah, so I basically have had a long series of mentors who've encouraged me to learn about and understand why different countries and different places react differently to different policies and to see tobacco control as the, the battle of politics, business, and health that it, it is. And I, I've had a, a great series of mentors who've really introduced all those aspects to me. And I really love injecting my work with a curiosity of understanding why things are different in different places at different times and how this fascinating field that operates at the business health politics intersection really works. That is so interesting. I look forward to seeing that book. Congratulations. Uh, Thanks. On it. Can I ask where the title came from, knowing it might change? But what is the meaning behind vape-filled rooms? So I don't know if the phrase is super common in British politics, but in American politics, and I think it's bled a bit into Canada, there is a, a colloquial phrase saying that political deals are made in smoke-filled rooms. So this is how politicians were selected at nominating conventions was a cigar smoke filled room where they chose who was going to be president, uh, at least the nomination, the nominee for a certain party. And so just a slight update on that is vape filled rooms to talk about the politics of e-cigarettes because it took ages to come up with anything vaguely catchy for that regulatory policy. Yeah. Oh, I like (laughs) it. (laughs) Well, I am intrigued. And can you just, I know you probably don't want to give away too much, but I suppose before we get on to your current research, was there anything that you thought was kind of the most interesting finding from that dissertation and and what's turning into that book? Anything that pointed you into the direction of what you're doing now? I mean, the two really interesting things that came from it was a need to come up with comparative regulatory language that had inherent meaning. So I have a, a paper that is an excerpt of the dissertation that's coming out in Millbank quarterly in a couple of months okay. that introduces the language that I use. It's called regulatory stances. I only find this interesting because there there hasn't been a good way to talk about regulation and like what one country is doing towards one market in a way that has inherent meaning and that's able to be translated across place and time. So the dissertation forced me to formalize how to talk about this, which is you have to talk about regulation at least I posit, as aiming to change the size of a market as a share of an economy in the future relative to the present. So do you want to make the market smaller 
or larger? Do you not want to set a preference at all? Do you want to have it uh, so the market goes to zero or do you want it as big as possible? Those are like the five basic options. Yeah. And the, the, the dissertation sort of explains the utility of that sort of language. But on the politics side, I, I found it really helpful to learn about why New Zealand and Canada went in a particularly different direction with regards to e-cigarettes. And I say they adopted what's called an expansionist policy towards e-cigarettes to different degrees. But expansionist means they wanted to grow the size of the e-cigarette market in their country, while Australia maintained a prohibitionist policy that sort of shifted to what I call a contractionist policy. And a prohibitionist policy in my parlance basically means it's aiming for zero, no market. Yeah. A contractionist policy is than one that aims to have a smaller market, particularly by giving disadvantages to a product relative to its substitutes. In Australia, the coalitional politics behind who supported changing e-cigarette regulatory policy were such that they aligned with the right wing of Australian politics. And even though they were in power, they couldn't show it as enough of a political opportunity to change regulatory policy in the manner that they wanted to towards expansion. Mm. So it was an example of really poor coalition building, really bad problem definition. They didn't sort of convince anyone that that the policy needed changing in Australia uh, in the way that they wanted. By contrast, in New Zealand and Canada, basically people who wanted e-cigarettes to uh, become a market subject to expansion defined the current prohibition as a problem that that bureaucrats didn't want to enforce. They found allies in the center left of politics and then were able to sort of present e-cigarette expansion as a reasonable solution to the woes of either perceived to be failing tobacco control policy or uh, as a way to get bureaucrats back to the work they wanted to do, but was not enforcing prohibition. So yeah, it's a long way of saying The folks in New Zealand and Canada chose the right allies, presented the right policy at the right time with the right solution. And I found that interesting. And so the book sort of charts that that saga. Yeah. Oh, fascinating. All right. And the reason we wanted to talk to you on this podcast episode in particular is we wanted to pay some attention to flavors. And of course, we first got in touch over this flavors issue. So I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about any work that you've done in your area and I suppose what your thoughts are and and where flavors sit in terms of regulation and and how much a part of the conversation they are and should be. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm based in the United States and we have had sort of separate conversations about the flavors of tobacco products in different markets. So we have a cigarette market that has an enormous share of sales that are dedicated to menthol cigarettes these menthol cigarettes were given privileged political status when FDA regulation arrived in the United States 13 years ago. And so I've been doing a little bit of work with my colleagues at Georgetown and the University of Michigan, looking at the potential effects of a ban on the share the sale of menthol cigarettes in the United States. And so like, I participated in a little bit of simulation modeling there. Obscure science term definition. Freeban and co-authors describe simulation modelling as a tool for synthesising and manipulating existing evidence, data and knowledge to examine the likely impact of alternative policy and service provision scenarios. That sort of pointed to a, a reasonably large effect 
of banning menthol cigarette sales. Now, that work was based on information from expert elicitations, which is essentially a process of asking very well-informed people what they think would happen with the menthol cigarette ban. I like gathering much more evidence, so I have expanded my work to on menthol cigarettes to look at some European sales data. I like to work with sales data from Nielsen company. Mm -hmm. I, I'm becoming quite a good customer of theirs. But I wanted to, so I, I was given the opportunity to do some research in Poland, uh, funded by the Norwegian Cancer Society. And mm -hmm. we decided to look at the effect of the European Union's menthol cigarette ban in Poland on, on menthol cigarette sales. And through some great effort and some difference in difference uh, quasi-experimental analysis. Wing and colleagues describe difference in difference quasi-experimental studies as a research design that researchers often use to study causal relationships in public health settings where randomised controlled trials are unfeasible or unethical. They compare the outcomes of groups exposed to different policies and environmental factors at different times. We looked at what happened when menthol sales were banned in Poland. So Poland has the, one of the largest mm. menthol cigarette sales shares. So like, you know, the amount of menthol cigarette sales that had to disappear in any country that ever attempted a, a menthol cigarette ban. And I thought it was very important to go look at what happened in this scenario because it sort of should better approximate what might happen in the United States relative to a place like Canada, where there's really good studies, but Canada only had at max 5% of the sales were menthol. Poland was 30%. Mm. The United States is close to 35. Mm. So in Poland, I figured with a big menthol ban like this, yeah, we're going to see a big drop in sales. Yeah. We did not. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, sales are basically flat in the ah. short run, and <laughs> we have to do a lot of you know work to control for uh, other things across the region. Do you sorry, Alex? Do you mean cigarette sales overall, or you mean menthol sales? Men sorry, cigarette sales overall. So you look at total cigarette yeah. sales. Basically, what the tobacco companies were able to do was convert all of their menthol cigarette smokers into standard flavored wow. cigarette smokers, so unflavored cigarettes. And only in Warsaw, the region of the country with the highest menthol cigarette sales share before the ban, were we able to see a significant decrease. Wow. The reasons why this has happened are not yet clear to us, but other people's work in uh, the UK and Denmark in particular are pointing out there's a lot of evasion tactics going on in terms of rebranding cigarettes to imply that they have menthol, imply they have flavor capsule in there, or to add flavor with these mm -hmm. um, flavoring cards uh, that seem to be very cheap and easily available. And if you put it in your cigarette pack without flavor, they will flavor those cigarettes within an hour. Uh... And yeah, so we, we saw and documented the industry responses, and it has led me to want to ask bigger questions about how this policy implementation is going, what health officials know, what retailers know, what manufacturers know. And I think we need to learn more about the European experience before setting our expectations about a menthol cigarette ban really high in the U.S. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and where do you think e-cigarettes do or don't come into that? I suppose in two ways. One being... Could we ever hope that, let's say, those 30% of people on menthol cigarettes transition 
to an e-cigarette, for example, as opposed to a, a non-menthol combustible product. But also, what does it mean if we're thinking about regulatory areas where we might be looking at restricting e-cigarette flavors further? Yeah. So the, the first part is in the EU and in Poland in particular, menthol e-cigarettes were available. Uh, all, kind, all flavors of e-cigarettes yeah. were available. And we still saw this almost you know, zero shift, at least in the short run, hmm. away from cigarette smoking, which is what we thought would have happened. Yeah. So in the menthol simulation modeling we did, the experts expected a good share of people to shift to e-cigarettes. Mm. And Poland has a very well-established e-cigarette market. Yeah. We even looked at heated tobacco, which was also still available in, in flavors. And it's not like you can see a huge uptick mm. uh, at, the, at the moment where, e- where menthol cigarettes are banned. What that means for regulatory policy is that tobacco companies like their cigarette profits. Yeah. They're very good at selling cigarettes. And if there is no financial incentive, they will make sure that they keep selling as many cigarettes as possible if that is the most profitable business venture. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we shouldn't expect otherwise. For e-cigarette flavor availability, yeah, that's going to be a whole other thing. So... I have done work on e-cigarette flavor restrictions in the United States, again, using sales data. I had a paper co-authored with folks at the Truth Initiative that we published in Tobacco Control in December 2021, where we looked at the effects of the flavoring, the flavored e-cigarette sales restrictions that some states put in, along with a total e-cigarette sales restriction that lasted for 90 days in Massachusetts, Mm -hmm. around the same time as the Avali outbreak of 2019. Yeah. Avali being the e-cigarette and vaping lung injury outbreak, which sent 2,000 folks to the hospital and killed almost 70 people due to primarily THC or cannabis e-cigarettes tainted with vitamin E acetate. There are, of course, some cases that are not accounted for, but it was primarily a problem of those products. And what we found was e-cigarette restrictions that just limited the sale of flavored products devastated the sales of e-cigarettes. Yeah. But we couldn't detect an increase in the sale of cigarettes mm-hmm. at the same time. That was our primary like substitution sort of outcome. When it came to the case of Massachusetts with their full temporary ban on e-cigarettes for those 90 days, we observed an increase, a worrying increase in the sale of cigarettes. And this was concentrated among the sales of brands that young people use most. So we're pretty sure this was a substitution effect from e-cigarettes to cigarettes. And it had to do with the availability of any Mm. e-cigarette in the state. So what does that say that we didn't find one for a flavored ban? Well, we only looked at temporary bans. Uh, they, they lasted anywhere from a few days to a few months. Mm -hmm. We'll have to see what happens in the the places where e-cigarettes sales are limited to tobacco flavor only for, you know, permanent phases to understand more about what substitution is going to look like in those instances. Awesome. Well, that is all so interesting. I think that's it for me, but I suppose what I do like to end on, first of all, if there's anything else you want to tell me about, please do. But also... If you kind of had a wish list, you had unlimited money, you could recommend any study be done in the future in the field of e-cigarettes. What might it be? What I really want to do is to be under- to understand what policy would 
absolutely devastate the cigarette market and to what degree that requires growing the the e-cigarette market. So it's a, it's a combination of, I don't know what kind of field experiment you could really perform other than to have very close, detailed, rapid yeah. tracking of policy implementation and surveillance. And of course, I think what my research shows is that let's say you're taking the absolute best case scenario tobacco cigarette policy that will probably grow the e-cigarette market. It's always subject to tobacco industry reaction. So let's say we're talking about New Zealand taking nicotine out of e-cigarettes as they have proposed to do in their smoke-free 2025 action plan. A tobacco company could withdraw from the New Zealand market altogether Mm -hmm. and uh, see what sort of chaos follows. A tobacco company could create a nicotine analog and put that in their their cigarettes. There's all sorts of things that we can't know just yet. Yeah. But we need to perform rapid policy surveillance and and well-funded market surveillance to understand these effects before people are allowed to assign blame in a way that is politically advantageous to them. Yeah. My worry is that a tobacco company which relies very heavily on its cigarette profits will do what they think is in their long-term best interest to maintain those profits. Um, I trust them as far as I can throw them. And I take seriously their, their, their threats of what they will do to maintain those profits. So what can we do? We can fund rapid policy evaluation faster. Yeah. The fact that the Poland study I talked about is one of the first to examine the reaction of smokers outside of a focus group to the continental-wide menthol cigarette ban, and it's happening almost two years after implementation, is far too slow. Yeah. I would speed stuff up. Yeah. Oh, well, I hope you do. And I think, you know, there's so many changes coming too in the space of tobacco regulation globally that wouldn't it be nice if we were well equipped to look at the impact of those changes, if not in real time, as close to real time as possible. Yeah, Yeah. I completely agree, Jamie. Thank you. Great. Well, thank you so much, Alex. It's been really interesting talking to you about this. I very much appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Right. So as you might be able to tell, I really enjoyed talking to Alex about his work. I think the policy angle is another really important one. We spend a lot of time focusing on kind of clinical trials, but of course there's a much bigger policy context and it's really interesting to think about specifically flavors in that area. Nicola, do you want to just close us out by telling listeners a little bit about the work that we've been doing on flavors? Yeah, that'd be great, Jamie. So Basically, we're kind of running this sub-study of our living review, and what we're doing is investigating whether the effectiveness of using a nicotine e-cigarette to stop smoking or the long-term use of an e-cigarette is associated with the flavour of e-cigarette used. And it's worth mentioning at this point that up to now, we haven't found any studies for our review that explicitly set out to compare the effects of different flavours of e-cigarettes, although we do expect that those studies are coming. So to to look at the, our aim 
we looked at all the studies that had been found by our literature searches up to January 2022 that measured quitting or the number of people still using an e-cigarette at six month follow up or longer. First, we looked at our existing analyses that are in our review and we grouped the studies in those analyses according to the flavour of e-cigarette that was used in the study. So through doing this, we found no clear evidence that the effects that we found in our review differed dependent on the flavour of e-cigarette that was used in the study. However, it is important to say that the number of studies in each group were small, and so it's likely that our findings may change as we add more studies to our analyses, you know, and as we find more studies as we go along. So the next thing that we then did was we looked at the studies that measured quitting and long-term use again, and we identified any that had given participants in the study a choice of e-cigarette flavour. So of the 57 studies we looked at, 10 of them provided their participants with a choice of flavour of e-cigarette. Now, I won't read out all of the information on the number of people who chose each flavour. Five of the study, of the 10 studies that gave a choice provide that information, but it would be very long-winded to just talk through all that now. However, we will write up all that information in a paper. None of the studies reported that they had carried out any analyses to see if the effects that they found in their paper differed by the flavour of e-cigarettes that people chose. However, when we contacted the authors of these papers, we were provided with raw data from the studies from two of them. So our next steps in what we plan to do is to look at the data from those two studies a bit more carefully and see if it's possible to carry out this type of analysis ourselves. And again, if we are able to do some analyses, which we think we will be able to do some kind of preliminary exploratory things, then again, that's going to be written up in our planned paper. So watch this space, basically. Excellent. Thank you so much, Nicola. I think it's quite a hopeful month in terms of e-cigarette research. We have four new trials, some of which I think are likely to be really quite impactful. Clearly a lot more work to be done in the area of flavours and some of that work ongoing. So do check in with us again next month to hear about what's new with e-cigarette research. Thanks a lot. Please subscribe on iTunes or Spotify and stay tuned for our next episode. But remember to mention the findings we have Can't tell us what'll happen long term Even though we know vaping is safer than smoking We may still find cause for concern If you're thinking of switching to vaping That's what the experts agree Smoking's so bad for you, they all concur The vaping beats burning Thank you to Jonathan Livingston Banks for running searches, to Elsa Butler for producing this podcast, and to all of you for tuning in. Music is written with Johnny Berliner and I, and performed by Johnny. Our Living Systematic Review is supported by funding from Cancer Research UK. The Cochrane Tobacco Addiction Group also receives core infrastructure funding from the National Institutes for Health Research. The views expressed in this podcast are those of Nicola and I, and do not represent those of the funders.